Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This episode we're going to be taking a look at a 17th century story about a dragon, set not too far from where I'm sitting now. Warncliffe Crags, or Warncliffe Edge, is a long, stony ridge, peppered with huge grey boulders, just outside of the city of Sheffield. Sheffield, for those who don't know it, is a small city in the heart of England, and at the very southern tip of the old county of Yorkshire. Famed for many centuries for the quality of its steel manufacture, this former industrial stronghold sits right at the edge of an area of some of the most idyllic countryside to be found in all of England a country which itself is largely composed of idyllic countryside. Many a resident of Sheffield and the surrounding towns spend their weekends engaged in all manners of improving outdoor pursuits, such as rambling, rock climbing or bird spotting. Warncliffe Crags is an area where such pursuits are enjoyed, and should you choose on a sunny Sunday afternoon to take a stroll along those rocks, you will find upon your map a place named Dragon's Den a cave running deep into the stone, its name recalling the events that took place on this pleasant climbing spot many hundreds of years ago. Dragons were of course a mainstay in human history. As any educated Englishman knew, Hercules had slain the seven-headed hydra at Lerna, and St George had of course killed a dragon in Syria. There was something kind of romantic and exotic about these great beasts, and the dragon certainly looked the part. Huge leathery wings, long talons, massive jaws with great sharp teeth, strong as iron, a rough impenetrable hide and a scorpion-like tail with a sting on it just to give the monster its own distinctive character. But the people living in Wortley were finding out that having an actual dragon around, even a local one, Yorkshire born and bred, was far from as glamorous as heroic tales of far-off monsters might suggest. Especially a dragon with an appetite as insatiable as this one. He'd eat up the trees, because fibre is an important part of a balanced diet. And that was bad enough. But once he was done with them, he takes the houses and churches, swallowing the straw and slate from the roofs, the glass from the windows, the stones of the walls, and the wooden frames too, leaving nothing behind at all. And there was no way that that could be any part of a carefully judged nutritional plan. The only thing which he couldn't digest were giant boulders, but like some voracious toddler, that didn't stop him trying. He'd swallow the huge stones up, and they'd sit in his distended belly until, finally admitting defeat, he was forced to regurgitate them all over the crags in which he'd made his home. Even today you can see the evidence of this in the massive boulders that litter the area. Traces of dragon vomit. When he started to feast on children, swallowing three at a time as though they were simply in a mousse-bouche, the situation became really serious. One morning Marjorie Gubbins, a local person of some good standing, was relating the latest awful dragon gossip. 
The squire, his wife and his children were all sitting down for a nice breakfast, enjoying convivial conversation and all ready to tuck in when there came the most terrible rumble, like thunder descending upon their hall. They all fled in panic, and when they were brave enough to return and the dragon was gone, they found the thing had eaten their whole meal, gobbled the lot. He'd drunk their coffee, eaten their toast, and he'd swallowed the table to boot. It was awful! If you'd heard the howls of those poor children, so hungry. And there were some poorer ones who got eaten themselves last week, you know, she added as an afterthought. It's certainly a crisis, agreed her father. But what can we do? Well, father, it may just be me being simple, but I reckon that what we need is to kill that hideous creature stone dead. Hmm. Her father stroked his chin as he considered the idea. It's a devilishly fine and original plan, Marjorie, but who could do such a thing? Its hide is as hard as rock, it has great big claws, giant teeth, fiery breath. No man could face such a monster. Well, there is one man, a knight of legendary prowess. He lives very close by. Perhaps he could do the deed? Oh no, my dear, no, you can't mean. Yes, father. More of more Hall. Women, exclaimed a highly intoxicated More of more Hall. He raised his glass up high. Toast to them all, bloody beautiful creatures, the lot of them. I ask you, is it a crime to want some love in this world? Is it a crime to drink and be merry? No, these are the greatest things in life enjoyed by philosophers throughout the ages. Come, my friends, eat, drink, make merry with me. This was a fairly standard morning in the life of Moor of Moor Hall. He was a bold, strong and capable knight, it was true. And he was certainly famous. Famous for his great deeds such as being roaringly drunk, brawling in the streets after accusing passers-by of being sons of whores, and for his more outlandish achievements as well. These really were the stuff of legends. Chief amongst these was that time, forever etched onto the memories of all who witnessed it, when an exceedingly drunk moor of moor whore took it on himself, for reasons best known to himself, to grab a horse by tail and mane, pick up the poor animal, and swing it around with such vigour that the creature died right there in his hands. Shocking indeed. But he didn't stop there. Why waste a dead horse? With an appetite that almost matched that of the dragon, Moore sat down and began to eat, devouring the whole beast apart from the head. Moorhall was actually pretty close to the dragon's lair, but for some reason remained untouched, and so Moore's life of all day drinking, dining and debauching was uninterrupted uninterrupted right up until that time that a large group of local people arrived at his door. They were weeping. They were wringing their hands and sighing as they made their way into the great hall. Please, you've got to do something, they begged. If this continues, the dragon will have eaten us all up soon. You're a good and valiant knight, a fine fellow of good breeding and morals. Surely you will come to our aid. More of Moorhall looked over the goblet held in his hand and regarded the unfortunate rabble with a definite lack of interest. Somewhat reading their audience, the people changed their tack. 
if you were to rid us of this pestilence, you would be handsomely rewarded. Some of our wealth has not yet been eaten by the dragon, and we would be happy to give it to you in return for your valiant efforts. I care not for your trinkets. No, I'm a man who wants for nothing. Nothing at all. Apart, that is, from love. And not just any love, mind you. No, I want a woman, say 16, full of youthful energy, if you know what I mean, with a good smile, yep, and raven black hair, skin white as snow, and good blushes. I love good blushes on a woman, don't you? A woman who, on the night before I would fight a dragon, should I be going to, would anoint me, stay with me in the night, and in the morning dress me for my battle. Yep. That's all I want. I'm a knight, you know. I'm not interested in these lower worldly goods which you offer me. I'm interested in higher things, and I doubt you can offer love to me. And as he took another good swig of wine, the crowd became even more agitated. No help would be forthcoming, it seemed. Until Marjorie stepped forward. Marjorie, a young woman with black hair and white skin. "'Tis a pity you cannot help us, brave knight,' she fluttered her eyelashes, and she turned as if to leave. "'Now, now, hang on a moment. Let's not be hasty here. I didn't say I wouldn't help. I, I simply... look.' He stuttered to a stop. Marjorie recommenced eyelash fluttering. "'You'd do it for me, wouldn't you?' The crowd waited with bated breath. "'For you, of course I'd do.' Whatever it is you want, my lady, no argument there. I'll get right to it. Now, what was it again? The dragon? The dragon? Big, huge dragon terrorising us all? Ah, yes, that. Don't you worry about that. I'll see to that oversized gecko. It'll never bother you again. I'll show him I will. For you. My gracious thanks, Sir Knight. And you'll do the whole anointing and dressing me before the battle thing? Marjorie rolled her eyes. Yes, my lord. And a kiss. And a kiss, my lord. A brief interjection here. This is one of those stories, of which there are a great many, where modern morals around relationships and marriage are somewhat difficult to reconcile with the social mores of the time these tales were written. There is definitely something pretty wrong in a young woman being offered or using herself as a prize to be won in order to convince a reluctant man to do anything. Despite the situation, Marjorie is certainly represented as more than willing to go along with the design, and in one version of the story is even shown as desiring more for himself, though I thought that was a bit of a stretch given the circumstances. If you hadn't worked it out already, The Dragon of Wantley is a somewhat humorous and bawdy tale, and here it's very much using an old comedy trope about young women and old men, which, while it may not seem too amusing now, would certainly have been played for laughs at the time. That Moore makes the bargain is certainly being used in some way to demonstrate how unknightly he is in the traditional chivalric way. And having over-explained all of that, back to the tale. Our drunken hero, if that's the right word, and it's not, has realised that he's agreed to fight a dragon. This was absolutely not something for which he was properly prepared. But though boorish and taken to a scuffle, he was not a stupid kind of man, and he'd weighed up the odds. Despite his prowess at bare-handed horse murder, he was no match for a fully grown dragon. 
But more of Moorhall had more of a gift for foresight and cunning than could be gleaned from either his reputation or his general appearance and demeanour. And so he set off for the nearby city of Sheffield. Now, whenever Sheffield appears in a story, steelwork or cutlery has to be mentioned. Even the Canterbury Tales, one of the earliest books in English, mentions a knife of Sheffield steel, and the story of the Dragon of Wantley is no exception. Moore headed straight for Sheffield's best armoursmith, with what he knew was a rather unique proposal. Spikes everywhere, my man. Big solid armour, forged from Sheffield steel, all sharp and deadly, covered in spikes. The armourer knew better to question the man who was paying, and got to work immediately. And soon more of Moore Hall found himself owner of the spikiest suit of armour ever known to man. It was certainly a fearsome get-up, even if myself and the armourer have some serious questions as to its general practicality. But it was what more of Moore Hall wanted, and he was confident that it would win him the day. The evening of the night of the combat arrived, and Moore treated it like any other day drinking, feasting, carousing, and enjoying himself immensely. True to her word, Marjorie did as promised, and got on with the whole anointing him throughout the night, though the drunken sot was far too sozzled to really appreciate her ministrations. Morning dawned, and the sunlight streamed through the curtains. Ugh, get it away! Oh, my head! Slowly, gingerly, and with no small amount of resolve, Moore sat himself up. Marjorie was already waiting for him, to do the next bit of the task he had asked of her, to dress him in his big suit of clanking spiked armour. In retrospect, he considered that perhaps he should have found someone else to do the job, or indeed lots of people, and some pulleys. Ah well, he shook himself. Best get to it then. Marjorie, let's begin. Marjorie began to put on the first piece of armour. No, 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 woman. I mean, let's begin the morning. I haven't had any ale yet. So, after six pots of strong ale, a quart of water, because health is important, and also after some considerable time struggling with a difficult suit of armour, more of more hall was about as ready as he was ever going to be for the fight. It was certainly something to see him stride to the battle, bellowing challenges to the dragon ferociously. He looked like some kind of giant mecha hedgehog. Now, the original ballad actually refers to him as being as an Egyptian porky pig, which to my mind is a far better word than porcupine and should replace it immediately. The sight of more of more hall caused some general consternation in the animals all around. Dogs, cats, pigs, all fled in the greatest of terror, quickly followed by horses and cows, which jumped out of their fields where necessary, in order to get as far away as possible from the razor-sharp human hedgehog that more of more Hall had become. Which was probably a good thing for the horses, given the man's past dietary habits. Of course, people from all the villages and towns around had turned up to watch the show. It wasn't every day you got to see a proper dragon fight, in fact, this was the first one that anyone remembered. It was sure to be a day that we talked about for years to come. 
So whole families with children in tow crowded onto rooftops and trees that the dragon hadn't yet swallowed. As in all these situations, there were probably enterprising people selling hot cakes, commemoration crockery engraved with the words, I was at the Warncliffe dragon fight, and other people inevitably running a book on who would be victor. The smart money was, of course, on the dragon. Marjorie found herself a perch in a tree. Having just dressed her recent lover into what was effectively a human sardine tin, if a little spikier, she was eager to find out what would become of him. All around, the expectant audience waited for the titanic struggle to commence. Many a person in a tree fancied themselves an amateur commentator and was poised to relay a dramatic blow-by-blow account to friends and family without a vantage point. Expecting a great battle to begin at once, the crowd was somewhat disappointed to see the gallant Moor of Moor Hall rapidly vacating the battlefield. But Moor was not one to be swayed by notions of how to fight. He was not here to give a spectacle to gawping peasants. He wanted Marjorie, and one of the most important conditions in achieving that was that he himself must remain alive to have her. He had no desire to remain out in the open, an obvious target for a dragon to roast. So, showing a remarkable amount of manoeuvrability for someone in a heavy suit of armour who has recently downed a heroic quantity of ale, more of more hall crept into a well from which the dragon was known to drink. And there he waited. And after a few moments, the dragon did indeed appear. A gigantic shape, all loathsome and terrible, blotting out the sun with the mass of its body, acrid smoke streaming from its nostrils. It settled itself next to the well, and lowered its awful maw to drink. Showing even more unexpected acrobatic ability, more of more whore leapt out of the well and smacked the dragon right on the nose, shouting, BOO! as he did so. The dragon, for its part, looked utterly shocked. Smarting from the sharp blow to its tender nostrils, it exclaimed in a booming, awful voice, Who dares disturb my drink so? Pox take you! Moore was feeling pretty pleased with himself and his early advantage, but his self-satisfaction quickly turned to horror and then visceral disgust. For the dragon turned itself around, away from him, lifted its tail, and from its behind there burst forth a great tide of excrement. The stink was of the most appalling nature, a wretched, rotten stench of sulphurous evil that filled the air and nostrils so that there was no escape from it. The crowd sat in stupefied revulsion, some covering their mouths with handkerchiefs, some of the more sensitives passing out. This was definitely not what dragon fights were supposed to be like. Though he had managed nimbly to avoid most of the literal shower of shit, Moore was retching into his visor. Oh, that is some foul dung. You need to see a doctor. Seriously, all those stones and wood you've been eating, they're really bad for your digestion. Angered by the taunting words, the dragon failed to notice the slightly splash-damaged knight creeping around the edge of the well. Moore flew at the beast again, knocking it another good blow of his spiked fist. That's it! I'll have you! roared the dragon, and battle was joined. The crowd cheered. This was what they'd been waiting for. The cry of more, more, more came from every mouth. 
though those who'd bet against him were silently rooting for the monster. And what a fight it was. No half measures here. Moore and the dragon went for each other, metal spikes meeting impenetrable hide. Both combatants displayed tremendous strength and prestigious skill. On and on they fought, wrestling, clawing, punching, for two days and a night. Some spectators went away, got a good meal, got a good night's sleep, returned to find the two mighty pugilists still going at it. No one could claim that they weren't getting their money's worth. Neither Moor nor the dragon sustained as much as a wound, up until that moment when the beast, smashing its tail against the ground, made the earth shake, and Moor was knocked flat to the floor. There was a sharp intake of breath from the watchers. Sensing an imminent victory, the dragon went to pick Moor up, to fling him into the sky so the knight would come crashing down to his death. But at the very last moment, before the awful claws closed around him, Moor rolled away, and was suddenly up and standing at the rear of the dragon. The crowd gasped, and with all the last of his might, Moor kicked the dragon as hard as he could with the great spike on his foot, right in the dragon's arse. The crowd winced in unison. The dragon let out an anguished scream, and in its pain and madness turned itself around six times, crying out, You've pricked my arse gut, my one weak point. What an awful way to die, you rascal, you murderer. The monster shook and trembled, and eventually fell down onto its back before letting out one final mighty groan, a final load of dung, and then expiring. A great applause and sounds of rejoicing came from the rooftops all around. Marjorie ran to Moore, taking with her all the ale she could carry. You've done it, you brave man! Moore removed his helm, took an ale in one hand and Marjorie in the other, making sure not to impale her. From now on, all shall know the name of Moore of Moor Hall. And he took a mighty swig of ale, gave Marjorie a great kiss with lots of tongue, and the credits began to roll to the rapturous bellowing and clapping of the grateful people of Wortley. As I said at the start of this piece, stories of dragons and the people who killed them are fairly common right across Britain. England's patron saint, the not-at-all-English Saint George, was himself a renowned dragon killer. The story of the dragon of Wantley is not like many of those stories, though. The knights who kill dragons are expected to be brave and chivalrous, gallant and bold, exemplar of virtuous Christian masculinity. More of more horror does not really fit into this category. The story of the dragon is very much a satire of the famous dragon-slaying archetype, with Moore and his drinking, licentious and horse-devouring behaviour being a humorous character played for everything a knight should not be, while the comedy to be found in the dragon's unfortunate intestinal troubles needs no further explanation. Despite this, the ballad has made its way into the consciousness of the local area, and no less grander building than Sheffield Town Hall placed host to a stone carving of the epic battle, though with an unfortunate lack of spikes on the armour or faeces coming from the dragon, 
because civic pride loves a good local legend, even if it has to be cleansed of its more scatological elements. Indeed, if you go to Warncliffe Crags today, you can find a wooden carving of the dragon and woods named after it, and you can even go and see the hole in which it was said to live. Almost all the places mentioned in the story are real, even more Hall. But the eagle-eared amongst you will have noticed that though the story is called the Wantley Dragon, Wantley isn't mentioned by name at all. There is some discussion about whether Wantley refers to the cliffs, a part of the cliffs, or the nearby village of Wortley, perhaps in a local dialect. But Wantley itself is nowhere to be found. The story as we have it today comes from one source, a ballad written down in 1685, though with somewhat earlier oral origins presumed. There is some common agreement that the piece as a whole is a pastiche of a legal battle that took place in the area, though there is some debate as to which precise battle it was. One account holds that the dragon represents the Wortley family, landowners in the area for whom the village was named. They were renowned for treating locals badly as they would enclose land, that is, take over land that was previously available for use by all, ejecting the people who lived there and who lived off that land, and then raising rents on local tenants who lived all around their estates. In this version of the origin story, the owner of Moor Hall, though confusingly a memory of the Bolt family, and not called Moor at all, successfully won a legal case against Sir Richard Wortley, who had attempted to increase the tithes, thus becoming the hero of the ballad. Now, the Bolts really did inhabit Moor Hall, however there is no firmer evidence that a court case of this kind ever happened. Another interpretation is based around a court case in Sheffield itself. In this case, the Lord of the Manor of Sheffield was misappropriating money from the land of the city that was supposed to be going to the poor and the church. He was opposed by a lawyer, one George Moore, who, I hope you're paying attention here, isn't actually from Moor Hall, because that was the Bolts. Now, depending on which version of events you believe, various different parts of the story are supposed to be allusions to this or that aspect of the legal case. Whatever the actual origin, it's fascinating to see the importance of legal cases and land ownership disputes, and how those events get remembered through folklore, that is, through stinking dragons and rascally knights. The version I've just told was drawn mostly from the original ballad, but I've also interweaved a little from one of the other famous versions of the story. For in 1737, a playwright called Henry Carey turned the story into a burlesque opera, along with music. It played to the crowds in London and was a storming success, playing for a number of years, making the story very famous indeed. Henry Carey's version of the tale extended the satire to that of opera in general, and also made the toast-stealing dragon a parody of the then Prime Minister, Robert Walpole, and his taxation policies. Excess tax as dragons is clearly a winning metaphor at this period of time. It's in the opera that a character named Marjorie appears. In the ballad itself, the woman is unnamed. Moore simply asks for, and I quote, a fair maid of sixteen that's brisk and keen, and we are simply told that he is given this by the people of Wortley. The opera also includes a subplot with a rival to Marjorie for Moore's love, despite that love's rather dubious value. And there is even a sequel opera where Moore's marriage is discussed, called Marjorie, or A Plague Worse Than the Dragon. This wasn't nearly as good as the bits about the dragon, so I didn't include it, and nothing really serves to illustrate the reason why any of the women are actually interested in Moore apart from presumably his large tracts of land. 
I would recommend reading the ballad, by the way. The highest cultural achievement it may not be, but it does have some wonderfully dodgy rhymes in it, and surely everyone can appreciate that. I should warn you, though, that there are sanitised versions of it online, for delicate souls who don't want the best bits, and I'd give those a miss if I were you. Here's a sample of the original at the pivotal moment. At length the hard earth began to quake, the dragon gave him a knock, which made him to reel and straight away he fought, to lift him as high as a rock, and thence let him fall, but more of more hall, like a valiant son of Mars, as he came like a lout, so he turned him about, and hit him a kick on the arse. 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 Words might have changed their pronunciation slightly since this poem was written. Now, there is one other notable version of the Wantley Dragon story. This was a 19th century version written by the American author Owen Wister, who is most famous for basically creating the Western genre. Apart from its name, his story has pretty much nothing at all to do with the Wantley Dragon legend, and so I have no intention of recounting it here. However, when researching the episode, I stumbled across the preface to the second edition, and was particularly taken in the way in which it was advertised, namely with awful reviews received for the book. Grotesque and horrible. Zion's Herald, Boston, 1892. If it has any lesson to teach, we have been unable to find it. Independent, New York. And the particularly cutting. One wonders why writer and artist should put so much labour on a production which seems to have so little reason for existence. Herald and Presbyterian, Cincinnati. These were all followed by the author's comment that now the public knows exactly what sort of book this is, and we cannot be held responsible. I kind of feel that maybe I should preface this episode with similar remarks. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this rude dragon legend from my South Yorkshire home. Join this next episode where, sticking true to the podcast format, we'll be looking at something else entirely and telling a selection of stories about churches. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.